welcome to the Ideas Matter podcast, where we bring you all the talks that you missed at our events. I'm Felice Basball with the Ideas Matter charity. In this episode, we've got the lecture, Online Harms to Trigger Warnings, Safetyism versus Freedom, the final lecture at our Living Freedom 2023 summer school. Trigger warnings and safe spaces began on campus, but the philosophy of safetyism has spread way beyond the university walls. From processed foods to panics over drink spiking and catcalling, many people believe that we face an unprecedented range of threats that we must be protected from, seemingly at all costs. So how do we explain this existential insecurity? And what happened to resilience and the freedom to take risks? In the face of the society-wide preoccupation with safety, what are the arguments we need today to renew the case for liberty? And who better to deal with this topic than Ella Whelan, journalist and co-convener of the Battle of Ideas Festival, and the author of The Letter on Liberty, The Case for Women's Freedom. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, thanks Claire, and thanks to Ideas Matter for allowing me to do this. I don't ever write out speeches, but I've been so intimidated by the quality over the last um, 48 hours that I've done it, forced myself to do it. And I think what I want to do is to try and understand this new concept of psychological safety, psychological harm, and that might inform our discussion about the online safety bill and the things that are happening in the current moment. But I just want to take a moment to step back a bit and think about these terms, um, harm and safety and risk versus freedom, and kind of ponder on how we got here, but also what our future might be of living freedom. So, what does it mean to feel safe? And the obvious answer to that is that it might mean being protected from harm. And few of us would oppose, you know, a building like this having safety regulations, putting in beams in places or a dog being trained not to bite you. On the one hand, safety seems like a sensible, civilised thing that a society might be invested in engaging with and securing. It's, you know, in many sensible instances throughout fields of, for example, science or medicine or innovation. We had, you know, Sandy talking this morning about how you might have made a value judgment at some time previously that you wouldn't teach AI to code, for example. There are things that you might do and prevent yourself from exploring or, or uh, you know, giving enough ground to in order to judge what might physically happen in the future. You know, we, there are the usual ideas come to mind, things like seatbelts, age of consent, capacity limits at concerts. These are sort of sensible, basic ideas of safety that pertain to people's physical existence in the world. But actually, more often than not, when we talk about safety these days, physical safety is sort of, it's, it doesn't come into the conversation very much. We're really talking about safetyism, and that's different. The move from safety being a practical, physical challenge, a challenge to navigate to or from something, becoming a virtue in and of itself. Safety has its own value, its own parameters, its own meaning. It's not linked to anything. It's not the safety to doing something safely. It's being safe in and of itself. And indeed, the main way in which safety is talked about today, psychological safety, pertains to the sharing of ideas and expression of words, as you'll be very familiar now with something we've focused on a lot throughout Living Freedom. Those who are comfortable with cancel culture are okay with censorship, but quite often you might notice nobody really that comes out and vociferously says, I am a censor, I think censorship is brilliant. But they're sort of are kind of casually okay with censorship, they accept it, because it serves the function of allowing people to feel safe. 
The argument goes that being exposed to a violent or oppositional idea, maybe it's racist, maybe it's sexist, perhaps it's from an old book, perhaps it's from a new politician, is akin to being literally physically burnt or assaulted. We are now at the level in which action and words are completely conflated. We are no longer simply concerned with keeping people physically functional, which is what practically safety regulation might you know, do when it's, when it's good safety regulation, but we are involved in predicting what might make people psychologically dysfunctional. Being upset or disturbed by an idea is as dangerous and damaging as being hit on the head by falling debris in a building site. And I think there's an interesting tension that we might explore here about what safety versus safetyism is seeking to do. You know, practical safety regulation might seek to put guardrails up uh, on a bridge to make sure that you can get from A to B in an efficient uh, and beneficial manner. And when it comes to safety of an emotional or political kind, the MO is always to prevent the act itself. Better to not try to cross that intellectual bridge in case encountering bad ideas might tip you over the edge. So, why has this happened? When did we all give up on the idea of resilience maybe even just tacitly, and give up on the idea that it's a beneficial thing to leap out into the unknown. And maybe it's helpful to first look at the tension between safety and freedom and the way in which it appeared differently um, in previous historical moments. So whereas today the state and the authorities in society, and I mean that by you know, the authorities with a capital A, but also you know, the management in your workplace, the senior team at your universities, are all invested in trying to control your own individual sense of safety, or at least you know, be involved in how you sh shape that sense. Where previously, curtailments on freedom were more likely to be understood as in protection of the safety of the status quo. So take, for example, an obvious one, but an important one, the argument against extending the vote in the early 1900s to universal suffrage often took on the language of public safety. Plebs and women being given the opportunity to access the ballot box could put the health of political life in jeopardy. It could be corrosive to not just the state, but to society, to your neighbour. Uh, who knows what these people would do with such power? Maybe they would vote you out, maybe they would do worse. And similarly, the refusal to allow women to engage in public and political life, to be chained to the kitchen sink, was often run along the lines of corrupting public discourse because, you know, women with our silly em emotional tendencies and, uh, you know, our histrionic attitudes in relation to hormones would not just put into danger themselves, but the health of their society. We would change the public discourse for the worse. And it's just as a side note, interesting to take a moment to reflect on how that patronising and paternalistic idea is still so incredibly prevalent. Uh, we still talk about how politics with women involved is different, it's sweeter, it's less offensive, it's more emotional, and politics with the demos involved is more dangerous, it's more unpredictable, it's more uneducated, it leads to terrible things like populism or revolution. But what has changed significantly is that the process of keeping a lid on dangers is no longer simply about maintaining a status quo, an elite with their you know, control over the resources of society or their control over politics, or even keeping society safe from corruption or disruption. It is now almost entirely about controlling how an individual considers their sense of self, their sense of safety. And I think two things have happened. One is that we have almost completely, in almost all areas of life, given up on risk as a necessary and beneficial part of human progress. For example, when we talk about risk in terms of sexual encounters these days, which is something where I think this is happening most obviously, you know, when I was a teenager, when you talked about risk and sex, 
It was primarily about pregnancy and STIs. You know, very practical thing about this is what happens with risk and sex. Now, it is almost always about that you might not feel good after sex. It's not about the consequences physically, but about the consequences mentally. The Me Too movement and subsequent discussions about how we interact with each other sexually have explicitly framed good sex as safe sex. And I don't mean condoms, I mean consent. And just as an aside, there's a great quote I always like to use from Joe Biden, uh, which I think really encapsulates this, which was at a time in America, and some of our international colleagues here might be able to, might, might know what I'm talking about, there was a discussion about sexual harassment on campus with Title IX regulation, which was seeking to try and intervene and control, uh, to stop rape on campus was the explainer for it. And he said, if a young woman is drunk, she cannot consent, she cannot consent, it's rape, it's rape, it's rape. That was a quote from Joe Biden. I think that shows you something about the way in which an obsession of fetishization of safety impacts upon freedom. So this mantra of ultra-safetyism is in stark contrast with, to take another uh, American that I'm slightly more fond of, the feminist philosopher Camille Pally, who's been mentioned already today, who I had the pleasure of interviewing in Philadelphia in 2017. She infamously said that women should demand the freedom to risk rape to risk rape, and that was very controversial at the time, by meaning that not only they should be free to have sex off their heads, drunk, uh, as Joe Biden thinks is so terrible, but with whoever they want, whenever they want, and, and in whatever risky situation they want to engage with. So that's risk. And then the link, uh, this links to the second thing that I think that we've lost, which is a belief in agency, in human agency, in free will, in the ability of us to do the things that we were talking about earlier, like take random acts, make mistakes, but also... Go, do things that no one expects, do things that aren't out, they're outside of the norm. Without agency, risk becomes a fear and a danger that is wholly unmanageable. It's terrifying. Uh, in, order to, in order to navigate risk and contemplate the potential for risk, we need to understand that we have the ability to act spontaneously, to react, to rethink, and to think of our own accord. There are so many ways in which agency has been damaged in the current discourse, it's a very depressing list to compile. You know, we argue that chocolate bars should be removed from supermarket checkouts because we cannot help but buy them. And, it, you know, you have to literally take them away from people's sight in order to stop that. We say that disinformation must be policed online or in newspapers and public discourse because if somebody reads something, and it's never an academic or a commentator who's arguing for these regulations, it's always some idiot over there, that they cannot help but believe it, that it was automatically going to happen. Slot machines have to be capped at a fiver or a tenner because working class people, so feckless as they are, cannot help but bet the house and the kids' holiday fund um, in pursuit of a few quid. We say that society shouldn't give us nice things, shouldn't give us better cars, uh, you know, faster phones, more food, more choice, because we can't help but use all of that for ill. It will corrupt us. We are awful people who are just going to fall into a descent. You can see I'm trying to highlight the utter misanthropy in all of this. But one of the most pernicious ways in which this safetyist war and risk is having an effect, I think, and this is where I'm going to be, do what Joanna Williams said you should never do, is not exactly speaking as a woman, but talk about women's issues, because it's my thing. And it's in the realm of women's freedom when this is, I think, really playing out in a stark way. As a society, we rightly, I think we should anyway, rightly identify that there are still some lingering issues in relation to sexism. But rather than talking about more freedom, 
more choices, women's ability to act as free agents in order to combat sexism, actually even on a practical level, our solution is to frame these issues as being solvable with an increase in safety. And what that has done is encourage a generation of young women not simply to be wary of dark alleys, but to invent dark alleys in their brain, to internalise a feeling of being unsafe at all times. I think one of the most sort of distressing examples of this was in the, you know, after the uh, murder of Sarah Everard, there was a discussion of lots and lots of young women coming forward and saying, I am utterly terrified to leave my front door. And this was despite the fact that we categorically know that attacks and events like what happened to Sarah are extremely rare. And if you wanted to have a discussion about violence against women, it'd be much more productive to talk about domestic violence and things that happen in the home. And yet, women weren't talking about domestic violence, they weren't even really talking about sexism in other ways. They were talking about phantoms on the street killing them. I think that's, you know, there's, there's a problem here that we have encouraged young women to prioritise feeling safe over being free, literally sacrificing their literal freedom, not going out to see their friends because they were so terrified. And in fact, we now see freedom as a dangerous thing, not just for what its consequences might be for society, but to ourselves. Again, particularly in relation to women, there is currently a discussion about extending abortion rights by decriminalising abortion, something which I am passionately in favour of and think should happen tomorrow. Instead of opposing this bodily autonomy because of arguments about the unborn or you know, uh, discussions about children or babies, which anti-choice protagonists usually uh, previously used, it's fascinating to look and now see that so much of the anti-abortion discussion is framed in terms of women's safety. The arguments are made that allowing a woman the freedom to have bodily autonomy would necessarily lead to her being traumatised, to her being unsafe, to negative consequences. The freedom to make one of the most important and vital choices in a woman's life, whether or not to become a mother, is too risky to allow. And I think what this all comes down to is that we've given up on defending the necessity for things to sometimes go wrong, for negative things, for bad things, bad choices, risks that don't pay off. And this is why I want to sort of talk about harm. Harm has become a moralised, evil, predatory term. It's become like a ghoul, a devil that people talk about in these sort of phantasmic ways. Something to be avoided at all costs. And I'm obviously not suggesting that harm isn't in, you know, in many instances harm is not desirable. We can imagine situations in which it's very genuinely caused, not just by actions, but by words and ideas. In uh, one of the sessions yesterday in the Ellen Nixon session on um, exploring old books, Emma Gillen made a great intervention where she talked about the fact that a book had made her so angry that she wanted to cry or did cry. We know that speeches can rile us up, books can bring us to tears, letters we send to each other can end relationships, texts can ruin marriages. You know, we've just heard earlier today from someone defending literature about how Shakespeare has completely influenced the English language. And you, know, you think about a quote, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. You know, we, can, we conflate violence of a physical kind with words all the time. But what we're missing today is a value judgment that unlike having your head cut off or your arm blown off, recovering from harm of an emotional or physical kind, which you might suffer from encountering difficult ideas, and I don't want us to downplay the fact that people do, that actually we have to engage with the fact that people do at the moment, particularly young people, do feel genuinely harmed and aggrieved and upset to the point of quite seriousness by being faced with conflictual ideas. 
but that this feeling is subjective. I don't know many people who can decide how to control themselves or react in the aftermath of being stabbed, but I do know that it's possible to decide and temper and shape the way that you react to being offended. And the value judgment we are asked to make is this, which is better, safety or freedom? And this is the reason why I think the living in living freedom is so important to the slogan. Because if you are always cushioned from risk, from harm and from danger, then you are not living, or you are living some kind of a fake existence. And I've been very negative here, you know, that harm is necessary, that you, I'm not expecting you to go about your daily lives in a series of kind of self-flagellation by, I don't know, reading Mein Kampf or something. That's, that's, that's not what I'm advocating here. But actually, I think that the, the reason why this is so important is the harm is necessary for all the gains, for all the pros, the positives that can come from shunning the cotton wool prison of safety. You know, you can find out something new about yourself. You can reach new heights in your understanding, see things and think about things and hear things that you never thought possible. Meet new people. It's an intensely exciting experience. And, you know, what about that most exciting experience of human interaction, love? Without love, uh, you know, love cannot exist without loss, without pain. Being in love with someone, if you've been lucky enough to experience it, is one of the most dangerous, wonderful, risky experiences that human beings can take part in. Uh, you know, I'm just not convinced that childhood sweethearts ever work out. You have to kiss a lot of dangerous frogs <laughs> to find your prince or princess. And I think I'm going to end here. Most importantly, you cannot know yourself without taking risks, without pushing boundaries and allowing for the potential to make mistakes, to have regrets and to maybe grow to your grave thinking that you might have done some things differently but that at least you had a go. The dangers of a perpetual safetyism are far greater than the dangers of harm and this is what living freedom means. Sacrifice, pain, discomfort, difficulty but with the payoff of an intellectual world without limits. Without freedom progress and a constant desire to leap into the darkness in pursuit of more, more knowledge, more freedom, more choice. We cannot recognise what it really means to be human. You've been listening to the Ideas Matter podcast, our Living Freedom series recorded at our 2023 summer school. You can find out more about Living Freedom on our website or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Ideas Matter is a charity, and without our wonderful donors, we wouldn't be able to put on the events that we run or produce these podcasts. So if you'd like to support our work, you can find the donation page on our website. Any little contribution would be much appreciated. If you can't support us financially, but still want to help us out, you can do that by leaving us a rating and a review, or sharing this podcast with a friend. It helps us get the word out about our work, and it only takes a minute for you. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode.